IBC Steve Shaw from the Real Truth About Health Conference with our October 2019 webinar with Brian Clement, the co-director of the Hippocrates Health Institute. Hi, Brian. Hi, how's everyone out there? Everyone's great. So thank you for joining us, everyone, for our October um, webinar. Um, Brian, maybe you can start us off by just uh, letting us know what's been going on with you, if you've been uh, traveling or any, any new announcements or anything in the news or on your mind. And then um, after that, we can go into your um, opening lecture and uh, go from there. So why don't you uh, let us know what's, what's going on and what's been on your mind. Well, we came back about uh, two and a half weeks ago from a very successful European tour where we started in Norway, went on to Sweden, went on to Germany, uh, went to Switzerland, and uh, we had nice groups and a lot of enthusiasm, and we see the world's changing in every single country now. I came back and I just uh, arrived home through two days ago from a northeastern tour where I started in Maryland, Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And on this Sunday, uh, we're going to start our West Coast tour in San Francisco on Monday and Tuesday in Los Angeles, uh, or excuse me, Sunday and Monday in Los Angeles on Tuesday, and in Huntington Beach area on both Wednesday and Thursday. And then we're going up to Canada for the Whole Life Expo where uh, that weekend, not this weekend, but the following weekend, we'll be speaking both Anna-Marie and I. And so it's, it's wonderful to see the kind of response that we're getting and people are finally awakening and uh, coming to their senses and realizing that uh, true health uh, really requires total commitment. That up until now, we've seen a lot of people look for abbreviated forms or moderate forms. And I think that the consciousness of humanity is growing to the point where they're beginning, at least at the very beginning stages, of recognizing that this is a comprehensive commitment to radical and permanent change that will not only enrich your life, but change humanity's course, as well as the environment of the planet Earth. And uh, we have a new book that will be out on February 1st, and that's called Manopause. And we talk about, especially to all of you women listening today, why men are so grumpy. We start menopause, andropause at 25, and uh, why many of the world's leaders are as wacky as they are and always have been, because by the time they're 50, 60, 70 years old, a lot of them are completely uh, in a fantasy land where they, they believe that they're virile and youthful self is still inside and it's frustrating to them because they're like little boys trapped into aging bodies that it's not happening so they strike out at the public and they're powerless uh, because they live in ways that literally expand the hormonal deficiencies that people have as they age. Uh, but tonight, as you know, Stephen, we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, blood sugar and diabetic type 2 conditions. So why don't we start right there? Okay, great. So blood sugar uh, problems, when I look back at the literature, the medical literature, which Anne and I peruse on an ongoing basis from a century ago, uh, there was no disease called type 2 diabetes. 
that used to be called adult onset diabetes. It was non-existent. And we spent about a four or five year period several years ago attempting to find that in writing. So can you imagine we went from a, a non-existent disorder to one that's one of the fastest growing disorders in the history of humanity? Uh, when I was a, a young man and they were teaching us about type 2 diabetes uh, and called it adult onset, it was a pretty simple scenario. As wrong as it was, it was easier for all of us who had to learn about it. They said if you contract or, or get type 2 diabetes before you're 27, it's not type 2 diabetes, it's type 1 diabetes. If you get it after 27, it's type 2 diabetes. Now, that's all been thrown on its ear, but it was a nice, neat package at that point. The fastest growing group of people contracting diabetic type 2 conditions, it used to take 50, 60, 70, 80 years of really bad living and a lack of movement and exercise, are our children who are 10 and 15 years old and even younger are contracting type 2 diabetes. And so I want to review this in a way that all of you hopefully can understand. So how many of us today need to be so worried that we should go out and get glucometers at our local pharmacy and start checking ourselves? I don't think that's the wise first step. I think no matter who the doctor is, conventional or unconventional, if you're starting to feel weak, shaky, uh, always needing some form of sugar, uh, lethargic, sleeping, falling asleep at awkward and odd times, be checked and have them determine whether or not that's either low blood sugar hypoglycemia or high blood sugar diabetes. And then at that point, if it is, uh, any competent doctor, no matter who she or he is, would tell you a glucometer is very important. Now, there's variations in technology today where you can actually poke part of this device in your arm and get readings on your cell phone down to the normal ones where you prick your finger and come up with readings. And generally in the early stages, unless you're really horrifically bad, you would do it in the morning when you get up and at night before you go to bed. Uh, when we're asking people to test themselves uh, due to the lifestyle changes that stabilize blood sugar, they may be doing it several times throughout the day and in the evening before retiring at bed. So the numbers uh, worldwide are pretty similar and they're accurate. So type 2 diabetes uh, is going to happen if you get above 115 on the average blood test. Now, in other countries, it may be 1.5, you know, they may use different scales, but it's a scope between about 65 at the low end and 115 at the high end. Now, one of the things that most people don't know and most doctors don't talk about, and maybe they don't know, is that unless you're born with type 2 diabetes, literally you had low blood sugar first. So the person had 50 or 40 or 60, and it was chronic. It wasn't occasionally that happened, because in most of our lives, especially in our youth, that could have happened almost in a naturally occurring way. But if, in fact, due to your poor lifestyle choices, you have 40, 50, 60, 40, 30, that's low blood sugar, hypoglycemia. 
That's the precursor to type 2 diabetes. So let's imagine, we'll make a scenario up a story here, that you had that for six months or a year or two years. One night you go to bed with this low blood sugar that you feel awful about, by the way. Uh, many, many years ago, they used to tell everyone there was no such thing as type uh, as low blood sugar and that you had a psychiatric disorder. And they'd send you to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Uh, now we realize, oh my God, a major chunk of the population has low blood sugar. So you go to bed that night and you wake up and now your blood sugar is at 200. Instantaneously, you become a diabetic. And so that's pretty much how most people end up with diabetic type 2 conditions. So now, does sugar have anything to do with that? So before I start talking about sugar, the number one thing that has most to do with it is the consumption of animal-based fats, animal foods. And how it works, quite simply, is when you take a saturated animal fat, it smothers and surrounds the cell. Now, everyone knows that glucose that you get from eating salads, by the way, you don't have to take high sugar foods. Literally, the salad offers a small amount of, of sugar. And that's an incredibly essential and important fuel for the cell. But if, in fact, the cell is surrounded by this thick, saturated guck, the sugar that tries to go in, the glucose, cannot enter or permeate the cell. So it remains in the blood stream. And voila, we end up with the term blood sugar. So do fats from plants cause a problem? Well, not like saturated fat, but the one plant fat that is mimicking what you get in pork or chicken or fish or red meat or wild game, etc., is coconut oil. Coconut oil is by far palm oils, the highest saturated fat food from the plant kingdom. Not quite as bad as pork fat or one of these others, but certainly it can in a way react in the same way if you're taking very, very high amounts of that. Now, animal products also, all animal-based foods, including eggs and milk, etc., literally spike blood sugar levels higher than carbohydrates. This is a new finding, by the way. This is only something that science has grasped and understood over the last five years. So once again, repeat, and I could not have told you this recently, that yes, eating a, a bread or a pasta, or certainly taking processed sugars, uh, including fruit sugars or honey or any of this stuff, will and can and always does uh, spike the blood sugar. But now we know what spikes it equally and even more so is when you eat a piece of chicken or fish or steak. So that's pretty relevant to this conversation. So it's a double whammy now. So let's imagine you're on the old Brian Clement diet. Uh, I was eating massive amounts of meat, massive amounts of dairy, massive amounts of eggs, and dipping my breads and potatoes in gravy from those meats. So I was very fortunate uh, that I didn't contract type 2 diabetes because that's all of the ingredients. Now, what would happen if you overdo it and eat massive amounts of healthier oil, uh, flax oil or olive oil, et cetera, 
or go completely bonkers and start eating uh, five, six, eight pounds of nuts a day. Uh, these are not healthy uh, food trends, I can tell you, but you're not going to find the same complications you will with animal-based saturated fat, meat, and dairy foods. Now, let's explain something to you. If you eat, a, if you're healthy and you don't have either low or high blood sugar, and you're eating hearts of palm occasionally, or taking fresh green coconut meat once a week or twice a week, that's not what we're talking about. Now, I know there's a whole group of what I would almost call uh, zealots in the plant-based community, a lot of doctors and scientists who tell you how evil all oils are and how evil all fats are and how evil all supplements are. I'm not part of that group. Uh, I also follow the science and employ some of the these type of methods with our guests that come to Hippocrates and find a lot of these in moderate, moderate consumption are actually incredibly helpful for you. But doing anything excessive, even with plant-based organic foods, is not going to have a health outcome that anyone's going to like right now. Now, how, how can we get our, our blood sugar levels lower? And in fact, what is normal? But let's start with how we determine normalities within blood profiles. There's not a written tablet of commandments when it comes to what blood numbers should be. What they do is they feed tens of thousands of people's results into a computer, or when it originally started, we didn't have computers, so mathematicians uh, put it together and determine what the averages were. So as an example, when we look at what the blood sugar should be, uh, generally between 65 and 115 or something equivalent to that in other numbers, depending upon what part of the world you're in, that didn't come because we guessed that. That came most likely, and I don't know this to be a fact, but I assume this to be true, that 95 to 98% of the people that had normal blood levels, sugar levels, that's where they stood. And so that's how we determine these numbers to begin with. And in the case of blood sugar levels, unlike iron levels, which I don't want to get involved in that discussion now, some other time we'll have a, have a course on that, uh, turned out to be true. And so it's been pretty good parameters for us to follow over generations and determine where you stand with this thing. Practically every single person can get their blood sugar levels at below 100. Now, you don't want it much below 100 because if you're 70 all of the time or 60 all of the time, uh, your blood chemistry is not going to be favorable to you being healthy and vigorous and vital. Uh, your brain is not going to function as well as it should if it's always bordering on the low. But seemingly, you would rather have 190 to 100 than you would 105 to 115. Because remember, 115 is a tipping point up there. You don't want to get to that the higher level. Because not the same problems will occur, but similar problems will occur for you. So... Almost every case, depending upon your blood chemistry, we can keep it down 90, 100, 105. And depending upon if you test the blood in the morning or test the blood in the afternoon or night, 
you will will get variation on this, and there's nothing wrong with variation, as long as you don't want large swings on this. Now, when you're on a green plant-based diet, especially one that's raw and not cooked, because remember, even if you take the same exact food that you're going to eat raw and cook it, it has a propensity at that point and biochemically starts to break down the sugars because there's little to no nutrition left in it when you cook it. So the body has to break it down in some way. And so it does it in a pattern the same way that it would break down any carbohydrate. A nutritive carbohydrate, a raw food, on the other hand, has such a, an abundance, a banquet of nutrient factors in it that the human body has a complex way of slowly go, going through a almost conveyor belt from digestion to elimination to slowly but surely ingest it and utilize the nutrients, making it the roughage, the cellulose roughage food, what you evacuate out of your body after the nutrients are in the cell, after the water comes out of it, after the enzymes come out of it, after the phytonutrients, the medicines come out of it. But when you cook it, it rapidly runs through the same way that a potato chip would or anything else that has little to no process needed at that point. And it doesn't mean it's a good thing because it doesn't need a process. Now, one of the things that we learned is, yes, it would be wonderful for me to convince everyone in the world who has concerns about blood sugar to sit all day and all night long next to a juicer and take protein-rich sprouts and juice them. And we see that. We see when people are at Hippocrates and we're monitoring their blood sugars and uh, they take green drinks, in almost every case, it regulates the blood sugar. It helps to make it normalized at that point. But unless you are either an invalid and can't move or retired and independently wealthy and have nothing else to do, nobody should be you know, taking a juicer and making it your best friend and hanging out all day. So we go to a second best scenario where we tell people to carry the least expensive algae called chlorella and take the ones that are little pills and get a high quality one like Life Give or Sun Chlorella. And when you feel that need, it's not really a need, but it's a psychological and biochemical uh, yearning that you have to eat something. When you know you're not hungry, you know you've eaten. And you remember, I remember very well, every time I ate a meal after the meal, I had to eat a dessert. So my body was still calling out for nutrition. I wasn't getting nutrition. And so you'd get the dessert and you'd get the synthetic uh, jolting of blood sugar that went up and made you feel temporarily satiated. But what was really happening, it plummeted down and now you needed more dessert. You needed more cookies. You needed more potato chips or more white potatoes or whatever the heck you did pasta. To keep you. So it's a vicious circle of unsatisfied consumption. And so when you take the high protein chlorella, which is by weight half protein, digested, uh, pre digested protein, uh, easy to accept amino acids, or you take a green drink, which is very rich in protein, you actually use the protein or the amino acids as a virtual vacuum cleaner to stabilize and regulate the blood sugar so it doesn't jump up and down and gyrate 
to keep you on this merry-go-round of consumption. I know I never stopped eating. Why? Because I wasn't eating nutrition and everything I was eating was turning into sugar and every meal I ate or every in-between meal I, I consumed was making it worse and worse and worse because the, the mechanism that says I'm satiated in the brain is not turning on. I'm literally being told by the brain, eat more. You're not getting anything. Oh, you're getting sugar, but it lasted for two minutes. Now you need more sugar to get that full sense. It's like putting water into your gas tank on a hill, going downhill and saying, well, the water is making me propel the car. It's all a false, <laughs> a false narrative. It doesn't really work. It's all in our imagination. So it's a make-believe energy that you're getting. So one of the biggest problems that I remember having, and I always talk people out of, hopefully, is eating late at night. Because remember, uh, the human body was built and historically uh, finished eating meals around sundown. And it wasn't until lights and television and now computers and all of these electronic gadgets came out that we stay up longer than we did back in the day and not so many days ago. Uh, when the sun went down, pretty much it was pretty boring. So people may have sat in bed with a candle and read, uh, but most people were illiterate, so they went to sleep. They weren't reading. They may have told stories. Uh, they may have had the family come together and sing, uh, but almost everyone went to sleep pretty early. Now what we're doing is we're eating at 11, 12 o'clock at night and plopping into bed on digested food. That all turns in if it's the, the typical Western diet or even international diet that we eat over-processed, overcooked carbohydrate foods and these animal fats that spike the blood sugar. Can you imagine what's happening? So your poor body's not digesting them, but it's a great, great culprit to make the blood sugar go wacky, to actually create the scenario. And so when you look at the Longo work being done at USC in California, and I hope to see him when I'm out there, uh, you actually see that blood sugar ratios, which he's detecting through uh, intermittent fasting and stopping eating you know, early in the evening uh, before late at night, uh, one of the things that he's really pointed out vividly and vigorously is that this really helps to adjust blood sugar, which, by the way, takes away the craving for you to eat more. Because if that switch keeps going on, you're hungry, you're hungry, no matter what, even if you know you're not hungry, you're going to eat. So eating late at night, not a good thing for any of us, certainly somebody who wants to prevent or help to reverse blood sugar disorder. Now, there's nowhere in literature that we see that oils spike blood sugar, but oils in high amounts, and certainly the, the bad oils that we spoke about in fats, uh, can interfere with pancreatic function and insulin function. So to say that the oil directly causes a blood sugar problem, animal fat does, animals do. But I would tell you that that wouldn't be something that at this point, anywhere in science, we see that happening, nor do I have an inkling that that could be true. I also know that you know your blood sugar levels have a lot to do with emotions. That's something nobody talks about. Uh, not only when you are emotional, do you tend to want to consume, or some people, when they're emotional, not eat 
which is just as bad in some cases because without any food going into your body and any regulation of the blood sugar, then you can really drop low and, and, and speed high uh, and gyrate on an ongoing basis. But the emotions play a role because they either have you overeating, undereating, and in fact, what they do is they change the, the me metabolic process that breaks down food. And the way I can describe this best for all of you listening around the world is how many of you have ever been really upset or had, sh had a shock? And then you, you were supposed to eat at a certain time. You sat down with your friends and family and you just couldn't eat. You looked at the food and said, well, geez, even though I'm a big eater or I eat on an ongoing basis and I never not eat, uh, I just can't eat. I'm not hungry. So the cortisol levels jump up. Uh, the emotions provoke metabolic change. And the body is literally telling you at that point, this is, and the brain, uh, this is not a good time to be consuming because if you put food inside of me, I'm not going to be able to break it down. Because the energy is going at this point to regulate hormones that have been, you know, released because of your upset at this particular time. Now, recently, uh, Anna Maria, uh, the co-director of Hippocrates, and thank God my wife, uh, I finally said, my God, how did you tell us 25 years ago that diabetes was causing dementia? She called it type 3 diabetes. And I remember when she first said that, I felt a little awkward, and I said to her on several occasions, and thank God she didn't heed what I was saying. She kept it up. I said, don't say that. Well, the literature and the science is out. It's very, very clear now. So one of the great ways, besides B12 deficiencies, lack of essential fats, and lack of brain use, that you can get memory loss, dementia, and even Alzheimer's disease, is consume a lot of sugar. It goes right through the blood-brain barrier. We have thousands of studies with MRIs now. We see it switch on every single part of the brain from the prefrontal cortex right to the, the lobes in the back. Uh, it actually, it almost looks like a, uh, a Christmas tree light in the hypo, hippocampus, uh, which is an area. And all of these, by the way, have a lot to do with memory. And everything I'm speaking about in three areas of brain I just mentioned to you, literally have a lot to do with the aging brain and memory. So no wonder, even at a very young age, this is going to impel the body and impel the brain to deteriorate much more rapidly when you have sugar in there, constantly switching on the lights, switching on the lights. The lights never go up. I mean, in my case, I used to go to bed eating sugar. I used to get up and eat sugar. You know, so my buddy, 24 hours a day, had some form of poison in it, sugar. And when I wasn't eating sugar, which wasn't very often, by the way, I was eating things that turned into sugar. And little did we know until recently, all of that meat I was consuming and dairy food I was consuming was provoking insulin levels even more so than the carbohydrates. So no wonder we have so many diabetics today. No wonder it's rapidly moving. No wonder our children today are contracting diseases that used to take 60 years to get when they're 10 years old. Pretty frightening stuff. So. Type 
3, diabetes. Remember that. Write it down. Don't forget it. Talk to people about it. Is dementia. So high blood pressure and diabetes are husband and wife. So if, in fact, anyone out there listening has high blood pressure, if you just do a little study, and you can buy some of these glucometers reasonably, and get on the internet, I'm even thinking they'd be less. So when your blood pressure goes up, look at what the blood sugar does. When your blood pressure goes down, look at what the blood sugar does. Because unlike specialists within medicine, we think the body is one. Everything affects everything else in the body. It's woven together. And there's no way to dismiss that. There's no way for that not to be true. And so when you start to look at the relative relationship between blood sugar and blood pressure, when we say blood, that should be your first indication that, of course, it's all in the blood that this is happening. So if one thing, pressure is affecting the blood, why wouldn't it be affecting the sugar levels too? And this is why, by the way, blood sugar levels and diabetes increase dramatically kidney disorders, uh, loss of eyesight, circulatory problems. I mean, the, the problem with diabetes, unlike a heart attack that could kill you in one second, this kills you by dismembering you slowly but surely. And blood pressure is intimately involved with this because when, by the way, the kidneys are being affected by the blood sugar, the capillaries, as well as the veins of the body, are no longer functioning in the way they should. Now, add on top of that, hogging the veins with animal fat, calcification, uh, and stress, which pull it like a, a guitar string and making it smaller and tighter, and combine that with blood sugar problems, my God, I'm surprised that 90% of the population isn't dropping dead from heart attacks or kidney disorders at this point. So the good news is that the pancreas, just like every organ in the body, is repairable. And type 1 diabetics, which we're not talking about tonight, uh, it's much more difficult than with type 2 diabetics. But everyone can repair organ systems and body parts without fail by living an exemplary lifestyle one that doesn't have processed sugars, one that doesn't have animal fats in it, one that doesn't have high amounts of cooked carbohydrates in it. And if you are, in fact, taking grains and sprouting them, even if you choose to cook them, you're not going to have the same grain effect that you would eating bread. Do you follow? If I take the same exact uh, wheat, and let's imagine you don't have a celiac problem or a wheat allergy, and sprout it and eat it in its raw state, or even cook it, it's not going to create the same level of uh, sugar because it's still a complex carbohydrate and it's broken down to a simple sugar, a usable form of sugar. Once you cook it and neuter it, once again, it has no process to go through, so it rapidly runs through the body and metabolis metabolizes very, very rapidly jolting up blood sugar at that stage. So the pancreas, there are a few things that I may tell you about the pancreas. 
besides all of the food-based facts that we're giving you tonight, you know, stress plays a major role on hurting or healing the pancreas. So if you learn to have mindfulness, contemplation, uh, relaxation, meditation, uh, if you are in a job that you're going out of your mind with, quit the damn job. Even if you make a lot of money there, you're going to end up sick and dead. And all of this not only affects the heart, but the pancreas deeply. Another thing I would suggest for you is put castor oil. It doesn't only help the liver and gallbladder. It castor oil, raw castor oil can be found at good health stores around the world, usually in the cooler section. And put it over that whole area, pancreas, liver, etc. Again, get a nice 100% cotton cloth, cheesecloth, put that on the top with a towel, and in the towel, put a hot water bottle. You know, keep the towel folded and take the hot water bottle with really hot water in it, you know, the rubber one, stick it in that towel, fold the top over it, and sit there two, three times a week uh, reading or watching a movie, whatever, whatever you do. Also, there's a wide variety of different herbal uh, complexes, uh, and I, I won't name a lot of them because all over the world they may be different, and you can go to the Oriental or Chinese pharmacy, and they'll give you one, uh, the Western pharmacy, that specifically helps the pancreas. But all of them are helpful. I mean, the most common one in the West would be licorice. Licorice is fantastic, and you can get you know, licorice drops, which directly help the pancreas, but also, by the way, if you have digestive disorders, lots of gas, it helps with that. And so this is sort of the, the nutshell a conversation I want to have about type 2 diabetic conditions, blood sugar conditions. Uh, once again, to reiterate what I said early on, because uh, this is among many things I'm concerned about, one of the most concerning things. Uh, can you imagine 10-year-olds uh, contracting this disease, how short their lifespan will be, how much they are going to suffer throughout their life with eye problems, with limb problems, with pain, neuropathy? I mean, you'd rather be dead than have some of these neuropathies. And I'm going to tell you, it is a plague out there today, and it's not getting better. Uh, very soon, we anticipate half the population will have diabetic type 2 conditions. And it's not only in the West. When they look in parts of the world, for instance, out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, the South Pacific, a lot of the indigenous people on these islands, between eating pork and eating palm oil, are contracting diabetes. A lot of the forests, besides being knocked down so you can eat Inexpensive hamburgers at Burger King and McDonald's uh, are being knocked down for the palm oil. They're taking down rainforests all over the world, all over the globe for the palm oils because palm oils are an inexpensive commodity for people to cook food in. Uh, just today, uh, we finally got back the information and data I've been looking for for, for about three years now. Uh, my colleague uh, gave it to me. He said the difference between a vegan diet implicated with how it helps the planet Earth and reduces greenhouse gas, which we all know now the data and statistics show it's about 
51% of all the degradation of the earth is from us eating animals and drinking milk out of their bosom and transporting them and the pesticides we use and all of the nonsense so that people have cheap meat. Uh, you can add another 7%. So we're up to 58% if you don't cook your food. Because remember, cooked food is using energy. And cooked food often is processed food and packaged food. And so all of that adds up to approximately 7% more degradation of the planet Earth. So you'll have 7% less just by eating raw food, 7% more by going beyond vegan and eating most of your food. I eat a little cooked food, but most of your food is raw food. And you can say, do we use energy using a juicer? Sure we do, but far less than a cook stove, far less than putting plastic packages around the processed food you buy at the whole food market. So that's where I want to end. And whatever anyone wants to ask me questions about tonight, we're ready to go. And uh, if you want to ask more questions about diabetes, Stephen, you may want to now. Okay, thank you, Brian. Just some more clarifying questions, just in general. Um, regarding blood sugar and type 2 diabetes and everything, when you talk about um, sprouts, are green leafy vegetables an equal substitution for clover sprouts, onion sprouts, radish sprouts? Are they an equal yeah. substitution, or are they different? They're different. Uh, so if you, if you look at a sprout, the, the magic of a sprout, and I just mentioned it, but I'll reiterate it, is that the proteins that are in the sprouts, and many, many of these sprouts are complete protein. I mean, they have all the essential aminos. Uh, the carbohydrates, because these are carbohydrate-based foods uh, in there, and the fats in there break down to their simple, usable, and digestible components. That in and of itself unlocks why a sprout is dramatically more effective on balancing blood sugar than, for instance, a vegetable would be. Because the vegetable has to go through a normal process of digestion. And in, the, in that, it requires energy to break it down, and it also takes time. So you're not gonna get that almost instantaneous success of regulating blood sugar with the sprout. Now, of course, some sprouts are much higher in protein than others. So a sunflower green sprout, which is in all of our green drinks, and a pea green sprout, which is in all of our green drinks, are exceptionally high in amino acids. Now, the caveat to this too, they have really healthy essential fats, which I, I intentionally neglected to speak about that, but also are implicated in regulating blood sugar. And so if you took any green leafy vegetable, it's gonna help you because of what it is and what it's not. It's not a high sugar food, it's not a fructose food, and it's going to regulate blood sugar, but not as dynamically, uh, that means rapidly, as it, as it would otherwise for the sprout. So in general, though, you, when, you, when you speak about um, our diet, you're always saying for all health issues that you'd prefer that, that we sprout things than just buy spinach and chard and kale. Absolutely. I mean. I eat all of the above, so you know that. Uh, you know, in my mind, because I, I was a foodie when I was young, and I grew up with that, uh, and I still haven't relinquished that completely. I, I, I'm far from a breatharian, let's tell you that. <laughs> and so, 
uh, due to due to the variation and the you know the interest I have in all ethos, but I literally in my mind and heart now look at all of those foods as condiments. Uh, so the night before we came on with everyone, you know, I had a salad and it was 75% sprouts, and that's usually what my salads are. Uh, when I'm really busy, they're 100% sprouts. Uh, but I threw in some arugula. Nothing wrong with arugula. High in, I like the taste of it. That's really why I put it in there. But very high in calcium. Uh, a little bit of lettuce, you know, so we had organic lettuce. Not much, but, you know, there's a pinch of lettuce in it. And none of that is problematic. It's just the, the power of the medicine, which we haven't even touched on yet, these phytonutrients that are in the sprouts are so unbelievably high. I mean, the sprout is 12, 15, 30, 50, 70, 80, 90 times higher in these medicines which also help to heal diabetes and other problems. And you're also saying that raw fats, such as nuts, seeds, avocados, raw olives, these do not interfere and cause blood sugar to rise. They don't like somehow block the cells the way um, animal fats do. They don't do that a little bit and cause blood sugar to rise. No, if you, if you ate shocking high amounts, I mean, when I first was a raw fooder, I was still eating completely out of emotion. So I would eat, you know, five or six or eight avocados at a sitting. And my metabolism, as fast as it was in my youth, wasn't that fast. And so if you do something as wild as that and consistently do that, it could be a wrench in, in, in the picture. But it's not going to be the same as a saturated fat. Or if I overate coconut oil, let's work our way up. Or certainly over a pig fat or chicken fat or something else, which, you know, I did all of the above. And by the way, diabetes uh, took my mother indirectly. Uh, my brother was diabetic, died at 50. That's not how he died. He died of fatty liver disease, which is also a brother or sister, how you look at it, of, of blood sugar condition. You know, and I've seen it around me my whole life because the way people ate around me not genetic, it has nothing to do with genes, uh, gave them diabetic type 2 conditions. And if we eat food in very moderate amounts, does that contribute to type 2 diabetes if we're doing it in a, a you know, oh, way no, the opposite. a day? It's, it's not the amount of food you eat, it's the quality and type of food you eat. So as an example, what we know, and yesterday I, I locked myself in and I listened to a professor out of the University of Michigan on brain and the aging of the brain and body. And it was really, really comprehensive. It was part of the academic series. But it was, it was amazing because he was, I thought it was going to just be about the brain, which I was excited about. But he really expounded on how the brain and the body works together. And he was speaking about that. He was speaking about uh, how the metabolism slows down. And by the way, if it speeds up and then free radicals work with that, does it age you? Does it break the brain and the neurons down? And what his scenario was, what his belief system was, with a lot of good solid science behind it, is that eating high quality food in small amounts was really the best way to go. And that goes back to, you know, the Warburg and the, the Harmon studies. It goes to our friend, you know, Thomas Seifrey and Everyone and Hippocrates, you know, this is how we basically see, you know, low caloric intake, high nutritious diets uh, be central in helping people reverse disease and premature aging. So I don't think 
eating less than a lot of food. Now, let's go and flip this conversation to high metabolizers. So there are people running around. As an example, uh, we had a surprise child 21 years ago, you know, when, when Anna Marie was in her mid-40s. And he's 21 now. He's 100% on this program and diet has been his entire life. He eats like a horse. In one day, he must eat. This is not a joke. What I eat from Monday to Friday, he must eat in one day. If I ate that much at this stage, even though it's all from completely healthy food, I'd probably be severely overweight. Now, would I get sick? Maybe not, but I'd be severely overweight uh, because there is a metabolic difference between somebody the high metabolizer and somebody that's not a high metabolizer. Plus that, you know, when you're 21 years old, you're still growing. Uh, you're, you're growing in the brain even more than the body uh, between 20 and 25 uh, very, very effectively. So you still need a lot of fuel at that point. So there are nuances and, you know, different scenarios for this too. What about fruit? Fruit. If you have one or two pieces a day, does that contribute to type 2 oh, yeah, diabetes? Absolutely. Healthy you know, and some fruit? Yeah, recently I heard a documentary where some of my friends and colleagues were on telling you that, that people can eat a lot of fruit and it doesn't affect diabetes and diabetes goes away. Well, that's completely, absolutely the opposite of what I found and Dr. Cousins found and everything else. Uh, fruit is just as bad. Uh, and carrot juice is just as bad, and beet juice is just as bad as any other form of sugar in, in hurting the pancreatic function, in putting insulin levels sporadically in the body, and in fact, feeding the very disease that you're trying to get rid of. So as an example, one of the things that we still do for the lack of having the time to do anything else is when people come in and they have dramatic blood sugar drops, which we see often, uh, because when people go from their typical Western diet to this incredibly healthy diet, and we take them off the dope, the sugar, that they plummet. Well, I could do numbers of things. I could give them medical uh, uh, treatments. I could send them to hospitals. But what we do is we take something I would tell you not to do, like a date, and synthetically bring their blood sugar back up again. And this is also something we have to do at times, even people who have nothing like a blood sugar concern, when they take an IV. Because the IV so dilute the bloodstream, many of you out there listening probably know what I'm talking about, that the blood sugar drops dramatically and will give them a, a date or something that's so high in sugar, which is absolute vivid proof of how fruit sugar does the same exact thing that white sugar does in the soda they used to drink, or God knows what they were doing. But could people have, you know, um, Macintosh apples, Granny Smith apples, blackberries, and there's some more tart, less sweet fruits that in one a day... Oh, sure. If you're going to eat fruit, be part of the they would life. be the better... The, the ones with the lowest sugar, grapefruits as an example, you know, some of the berries wild berries specifically, uh, have lower sugar, they'd be your preference. But these are not something I would tell somebody with low blood sugar, hypoglycemia, or diabetes to take. Uh, they're, they're something I would tell you to avoid. Uh, and you're going to get all the, the adequate glucose you need to feed the cell uh, from eating salads, eating greens, taking sprouts, 
All of those contain. There's not a plant-based food in the world that doesn't have glucose in it. Just you need low levels of it. But from, but from, from an emotional point of view, for someone who's not sick, who's listening yeah. to this, um, they're all, you know, they're, they're, they're considering fruit like already extreme to like not have any other sugar but fruit. I understand. I yeah, mean, are you, can we, can we fit it in in some way? Can sure. you have an apple sure. a day? Uh, well, why not? I mean, as long as you're eating normally an apple a day, you know, four or five, six pieces of fruit a week, fine. Uh, I personally chose to give all fruit up, so I don't eat any fruit at all. Uh, because in my life, it didn't work. Uh, I feel much better on a sprout and green diet. You know, I eat nuts, I eat seeds, uh, sprouted grains, sprouted beans at times, but more nuts and seeds and, and greens and sprouts. Uh, and that works for me best. Uh, but if this is something that either emotionally or biologically feels good for you, knock yourself out. Just make sure you're not doing it as drug. You know, which I used to do. I mean, I used to take massive amounts of it uh, to make myself feel synthetically better. And all it was doing is making me feel in the long run worse. If you take your blood sugar every morning and it says 90 and you're eating a piece of fruit every day, does that mean the fruit is not bothering you or is it a cumulative thing that after many years would cause a problem? Well, I mean, if, if it's consistently 90 over a long period of time, it looks like it's not spiking your blood sugar. So I would doubt that that's a problem for you, even if you did it for 10 years. Uh, but let's imagine uh, you'd been doing it for two years. It was 90 every single day, which is highly unlikely, but let's imagine that. Uh, and then all at once, it spiked to 110. And then one day it went to 120, and the next day it went to 90. That's when we have to start watching out. But I'm not sure that I would promote the idea of getting a glucometer and testing yourself unless you suspect it. Remember, I started out by saying go to a doctor and see if you're low or high blood sugar, unless you suspect it, you're that. I don't want people to make to become laboratory scientists in what you consume. You know, we can overdo this sometimes, and it becomes a little bit neurotic, and you know, food no longer has any joy to it. It's just it's almost like gasoline at that point. Got it. Okay, Brian, very good. So thank you for that. And let me um, turn to our audience to let them ask me some questions.